fast asleep. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for spreading the word because, well, because of you, fast asleep is growing. Now, for today's author, let's see how you do with this little quiz. Who was born a high Victorian and many, many years later died a television star? Hmm. Okay. What author did H.P. Lovecraft consider a master of the ghost story. But this author was not impressed with Lovecraft. Ooh. And more. Who died leaving only one suitcase of possessions? Now that's hard to believe. Because most of his paperwork had been destroyed during the Blitz. Hmm. Well, do you know? He was born in Kent, England. This broadcasting narrator, journalist, novelist, and thankfully prolific short story writer is Algernon Blackwood. Did you know it? And yes, ghost stories were what he was most lauded for. And we can never get through October without Algernon, but it would be wrong to limit him to just once a year, don't you think? We learned he loved to mountain climb and he loved to ski in both the Alps, good taste, and the American North. And his stories would often reflect the opposition between his beloved wilderness and society. He easily combined nature's sense of awe with the, I guess, horror of outer unknown forces. But here's the part I like the best. As to Mr. Blackwood's career as a broadcasting narrator, the very first night of scheduled television in the UK ended with Ghost stories told by Algernon Blackwood. He continued to appear on the BBC for years after this because his stories became a favorite regular feature. And also, I think, because of that sweet face telling those scary stories. Oh, please feel free to scroll back for his other tales on Fast Asleep, and they include... The Kit Bag, The Listener, The Willows, and The Empty House. He's a favorite around here, I'm sure you can tell. So, a few episodes back, we enjoyed Graham Greene's The Basement Room. So, now let's tuck in everybody for Algernon Blackwood's The Attic.
the forest-girdled village upon the Jura slopes slept soundly, although it was not yet many minutes after ten o'clock. The clang of the couvre-feu, the curfew, had indeed just ceased its notes swept far into the woods by a wind that shook the mountains. This wind now rushed down the deserted street. It howled about the old rambling building called La Citadelle, whose roof towered, gaunt and humped, above the smaller houses. A chateau left unfinished long ago by Lord Weems, the exiled Jacobite. He was a supporter of King James II after he was removed from power. The families who occupied the various apartments listened to the storm and felt the building tremble. Mm, it's the mountain wind. It will bring the snow, the mother said, without looking up from her knitting. Oh, and how sad it sounds. But it was not the wind that brought sadness. As we sat round the open fire of peat, it was the wind of memories. The lamplight slanted along the narrow room towards the table where breakfast things lay ready for the morning. The double windows were fastened. At the far end stood a door ajar, and on the other side of it, the two elder children lay asleep in the big bed. But beside the window was a smaller, un used bed that had been empty now a year and tonight was the anniversary and so the wind brought sadness and long thoughts the little chap that used to lie there was already twelve months gone far, far beyond the hole where the winds came from, as he called it. Yet it seemed only yesterday that I went to tell him a tuck-up story, to stroke Riquette, the old motherly cat that cuddled against his back and laid a paw beside his pillow like like a human being, and to hear his funny little earnest whisper say, Oncle, tu sais, j'ai pris pour Petervelle. Uncle, you know, I'm going to pray for Petervelle. For La Citadelle had its unhappy ghost of Petavel, the usurer, who would lend money at exorbitant rates, who had hanged himself in the attic a century gone by, and 
was known to walk its dreary corridors in search of peace. And this wise Irish mother, calming the boy's fears with wisdom, had told him, If you pray for Pedivel, you'll save his soul and make him happy, and he'll only love you. And thereafter, this little imaginative boy had done so every night. With a passionate seriousness, he did it. He had a wonderful, delicate way like that. In all our hearts, he made his fairy nests a wonder. In my own, I know. He lay closer than any joy imaginable. With his big blue eyes, his queer soft questionings, and his splendid child's unselfishness. A sun-kissed flower of innocence that, well, had he lived, might have sweetened half a world. Oh. Let's put more peat on, the mother said, as a handful of rain, like stones, came flinging against the windows. Oh, that must be hail. And she went on tiptoe to the inner room. They're sleeping like two puddings, she whispered, coming presently back. But it struck me. She had taken longer than to notice merely that, and her face wore an odd expression that made me uncomfortable. I thought she was somehow just about to laugh or cry. By the table a second, she hesitated. I caught the flash of indecision as it passed. Pan, she said suddenly. It was a nickname stolen from my tuck-up stories he had given me. I wonder how Riquette got in. She looked hard at me. It wasn't you, was it? For we never let her come at night. Since he had gone, it was too poignant. The beastie always went cuddling and nestling into that empty bed. But this time it was not my doing, and I offered plausible explanations. But she's on the bed. Uh, Pam, would you be so kind? She left the sentence unfinished, but I easily understood, for a lump had somehow risen in my own throat, too, and I remembered now that she had come out from the inner room so quickly with a kind of hurried rush, almost. I put Mir Riquette out into the corridor. A lamp stood on the chair outside the door of another occupant further down, and I urged her gently towards it. She turned and looked at me straight up into my face. 
but instead of going down as I suggested, she went slowly in the opposite direction. She stepped softly towards a door in the wall that led up broken stairs into the attics. And there she sat down and waited. And so I left her and came hastily to the peat fire and companionship. The wind rushed in behind me and slammed the door. And we talked then, somewhat busily, of cheerful things, of the children's future, oh, the excellence of the cheap Swiss schools, of Christmas presents, skiing, snow, tobogganing. I led the talk away from mournfulness, and when these subjects were exhausted, I told stories of my own adventures in distant parts of the world, but Mother listened the whole time, not to me. Oh, her thoughts were all elsewhere, and her air of intently, secretly listening bordered, I felt, upon the uncanny for she often stopped her knitting and sat with her eyes fixed upon the air before her. She stared blankly at the wall, her head slightly on one side, her figure tense, attention strained. Elsewhere, or when my talk positively demanded it, her nod was oddly mechanical, and her eyes looked through and past me. The wind continued very loud and roaring, but the fire glowed, the room was warm and cozy. Yet she shivered, and when I drew attention to it, her reply, I do feel cold, but I didn't know I shivered, was given as though she spoke across the air to someone else. But what impressed me even more uncomfortably were her repeated questions about Riquette. When a pause in my tales permitted, she would look up with, I wonder where Riquette went, or thinking of the inclement night. I hope near Riquette's, not out of doors. Perhaps Madame Favre has taken her in. Well, I offered to go and see. Indeed, I was already halfway across the room when there came the heavy bang at the door that rooted me to the ground where I stood. Oh, it was not the wind. It was something alive that made it rattle. There was a second blow, a thud 
on the corridor boards followed, and then a high, odd voice that at first was as human as the cry of a child. It is undeniable that we both started, and for myself I can answer truthfully that a chill ran down my spine, but what frightened me more than the sudden noise and the eerie cry was the way Mother supplied the immediate explanation. For behind the words, it's only Riquette, she sometimes springs at the door like that. Perhaps we'd better let her in. Was a certain touch of uncanny quiet that made me feel she had known the cat would come and knew also why she came. One cannot explain such impressions further. They leave their vital touch and then go their way. Into the little room, however, in that moment, there came between us this uncomfortable sense that the night held other purposes than our own, and that my companion was aware of them. There was something going on far, far removed from the routine of life as we were accustomed to it. Moreover, our usual routine was the eddy, while this was the main stream. I mean, it felt big. And so it was that the entrance of the familiar, friendly creature brought this thing. Both itself and mother knew. But whereof I, as yet, was ignorant. I held the door wide. of the familiar, friendly creature brought this thing, both itself and mother, knew.
but whereof I, as yet, was ignorant. I held the door wide. The draft rushed through behind her and sent a shower of sparks about the fireplace. The lamp flickered and gave a gulp, and Riquette marched slowly past with all the impressive dignity of her kind towards the other door that stood ajar. Turning the corner like a shadow, she disappeared into the room where the two children slept. We heard the soft thud with which she leaped upon the bed. And then, in a lull of the wind, she came back again and sat on the oilcloth, staring into Mother's face. She mewed and put a paw out, drawing the black dress softly with half-opened claws. Oh, and it was all so horribly suggestive and pathetic. And it revived such poignant memories that I got up impulsively. I think I had actually said the words, we'd better put her out, mother, after all, when my companion rose to her feet and forestalled me. She said another thing instead, and it took my breath away to hear it. She wants us to go with her. Pan, will you come too? The surprise on my face must have asked the question, for I do not remember saying anything. To the attic, she said quietly. She stood there by the table, a tall, grave figure, dressed in black, and her face above the lampshade caught the full glare of light. Its expression positively stiffened me. She seemed so secure in her singular purpose, and her familiar appearance had so oddly given place to something wholly strange to me. She looked like another person, almost with the unwelcome transformation of the sleepwalker about her. Cold came over me as I watched her, for I remembered suddenly her Irish second sight, her story years ago of meeting a figure on the attic stairs, the figure of Petavel, and the idea of this motherly, sedate, and wholesome woman, absorbed day and night in prosaic domestic duties, and yet seeing things, touched the in 
incongruous, almost to the point of alarm. It was so distressingly convincing. Yet, she knew quite well that I would come. Indeed, following the excited animal, she was already by the door. And a moment later, still without answering or protesting, I was with them in the drafty corridor. There was something inevitable in her manner that made it impossible to refuse. She took the lamp from its nail on the wall and following our four-footed guide, who ran with obvious pleasure just in front, she opened the door into the courtyard. Oh, the wind nearly put the lamp out, but a minute later we were safe inside the passage that led up flights of creaky wooden stairs towards the world of tenantless attics overhead. And I shall never forget the way the excited Riquette first stood up and put her paws upon the various doors, trotted ahead, turned back to watch us coming, and then finally sat down and waited on the threshold of the empty, raftered space that occupied the entire length of the building underneath the roof. For her manner was more that of an intelligent dog than of a cat, and sometimes more like that of a human mind than either. We had come up without a single word. The howling of the wind as we rose higher was like the roar of artillery. There were many broken stairs, and the narrow way was full of twists and turnings. It was a dreadful journey. I felt eyes watching us from all the yawning spaces of the darkness and the noise of the storm. Smothered footsteps everywhere. Troops of shadows kept us company. But it was on the threshold of this big chief attic when mother stopped abruptly to put down the lamp that real feet took hold of me. For Riquette marched steadily forward into the middle of the dusty flooring, picking her way among the fallen tiles and mortar as though she went towards someone. She purred loudly and uttered little cries of excited pleasure. Her tail went up into the air and she lowered her head with the unmistakable intention of being stroked. Her lips opened and shut. Her green eyes smiled. She was being stroked. Oh, it 
was an unforgettable performance. I would rather have witnessed an execution or a murder than watch that mysterious creature twist and turn about in the way she did. Her magnified shadow was as large as a pony on the floor and rafters. I wanted to hide the whole thing by extinguishing the lamp, for even before the mysterious action began, I experienced the sudden rush of conviction that others besides ourselves were in this attic and standing very close to us indeed. And although there was ice in my blood, there was also a strange swelling of the heart that only love and tenderness could bring. But whatever it was, my human companion, still silent, she knew and understood. She saw and her soft whisper that ran with the wind among the rafters. Il a pris pour Petivel. It's le bon Dieu l'a entendu. He prayed for Petivel, and the good Lord heard him. It did not amaze me one quarter as much as the expression I then caught upon her radiant face. Tears ran down the cheeks, but they were tears of happiness. Her whole figure seemed lit up. Oh, she opened her arms, picture of great motherhood proud, blessed, and tender beyond words. Now I thought she was going to fall, for she took quick steps forward. But when I moved to catch her, she drew me aside instead, with a sudden gesture that brought fear back in the place of wonder. Let them pass. She whispered grandly, Pan, don't you see? He's leading him into peace and safety by the hand. And her joy seemed to kill the shadows and fill the entire attic with white light. Then almost simultaneously with her words, oh, she swayed. I was in time to catch her, but as I did so, across the very spot where we had just been standing, two figures, I swear, went past us like a flood of light. There was a moment next of such confusion, 
that I did not see what happened to Riquette, for the sight of my companion kneeling on the dusty boards and praying with a curious sort of passionate happiness while tears pressed between her covering fingers. Well, the strange wonder of this made me utterly oblivious to minor details. We were sitting round the peat fire again, and Mother was saying to me in the gentlest, tenderest whisper I ever heard from human lips, Pan, I think perhaps that's why God took him. And when a little later we went in to make Riquette cozy in the empty bed, ever since kept sacred to her use, the mournfulness had lifted, and in the place of resignation was proud peace and joy that knew no longer sad or selfish questionings. Good night. <laughs>